Welcome to Fearonomics, the podcast which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. We'll be looking at the latest economic data, debunking myths and defining the risks that we need to watch out for, and of course, those that we don't. A spectre is haunting the global economy, the spectre of inflation. The question on everyone's mind is just how bad will it get? Will our policymakers and central bankers lose control of rising prices? And if you think high inflation is traumatic, wait until you experience stagflation. My name's Jonathan Charles, and here with me, I've got Sergei Guria, Professor of Economics at Sciences Po, and Beata Yavorchik, Professor of Economics, at Oxford University, and of course, the EBRD's Chief Economist. They'll be assessing the potential, the fears, and the risks of inflation. Let's look at the context. War, the pandemic, and the energy crisis have created conditions for a perfect storm. Policymakers had to step up support for businesses and the population at large when COVID-19 was at its worst. The strain on public budgets was really felt even before Russia's war on Ukraine. The latest IMF forecast sees the war-induced commodity price increases and broadening price pressures, pushing inflation in 2022 to 5.7% on average in advanced economies, and 8.7% in emerging market and developing economies. So what's next? Destabilized financial markets, stagflation, high inflation and low growth, new and multiplying faces of poverty. What are the inflation fears that keep people awake at night? Maybe that's a good question to start with. Uh, let's turn to Beata. What keeps you awake at night, uh, Beata, on inflation? Well, Jonathan, my greatest fear is inflation spiraling out of control resulting in social unrest and political instability. Now, this episode of inflation started with a mismatch between supply and demand, um, driven by consumption patterns shifting away from services and towards goods. Then we got the situation being exacerbated by the great resignation, as many workers chose not to return to the labor market when the pandemic eased, and that led to very tight labor markets. And then the war in Ukraine sent commodity prices sky high. So taming inflation caused by this triple whammy will certainly not be easy. And it's not difficult to imagine scenarios when policy mistakes are made and inflation gets out of control. Now, this may happen if policymakers try to rewrite the laws of economics and choose to pursue policies contrary to conventional wisdom. It may happen if central bankers wait too long to increase interest rates in pursuit of other objectives, such as, for instance, lowering unemployment among minorities. Or this may happen if central banks cave in to government pressures not to put brakes on post-COVID recovery. So an awful lot of uh, things to actually uh, take apart, which we'll be doing over the next uh, few minutes as we dissect all of that. Sergey, what's the inflation fear or the inflation fears that are keeping you awake at night? Yes, I fully agree with Beata in the analysis, as well as the worries that are quite real. One should understand that when policymakers uh, make decisions, they usually base their quantitative estimates on uh, uh, previous times. But the situation which we are facing now is unprecedented. Uh, pandemics, the re different reaction of two pandemics by different countries, including the zero COVID policies by China. Then uh, the war in Ukraine, which uh, has a great impact on energy prices and grain prices. So all of that 
creates an environment in which it's very hard to calculate precisely which interest rates uh, to raise when and by how much. And it's easy, as Beata had just said, to make a mistake on either side, which uh, may either make uh, inflation to spin out of control or uh, to tighten too fast, too quickly and cause uh, a recession or, um, or, or uh, destroy asset prices too quickly, which undermines wealth and again, reinforces uh, reduction in spending and again, contributing to recession. So uh, these things are quite real and it's very hard to uh, know in advance what the right policy is going to be. So is there one big risk, Sergey, that you think about uh, when you think of the growing level of inflation? Well, for me, the, the most important risk is that inflation spirals out of control. And uh, high inflation does have costs. Whether inflation is 2% or 2.5% doesn't really matter. It matters uh, if you have an inflation target. And if, if your inflation target is 2.5% and you stick to it, it's the same as if you have inflation target of 2.4% and you stick to it. But when we talk about 6% of inflation or 8% of inflation, that suddenly matters. And uh, you can have real costs of that. And what central banks usually do, they say, we have um, an increase in price of gas driven by whatever factors. So let's ride it out and let's uh, allow for temporary increase in inflation rates and price adjustment. But then we need to crack down on secondary effects such as uh, wage increases and uh, increases in other prices. And uh, this is what central banks usually do. If they don't act, on that front, and inflation continues to escalate, and indexation pushes inflation further, and wage increases contribute to cost inflation, that suddenly makes uh, the situation much more difficult when it's harder to tame the high inflation. And this is what worries me right now. And of course, the uh, factors that Beata has mentioned uh, regarding unemployment in certain parts of the society, regarding war, regarding uh, problems with uh, uh, supply chains, global supply chains, all of that contributes to potential policy mistakes. And Beata, one big risk in your mind? Well, let me just mention two and only two so that the conversation doesn't get too depressing. Tight monetary policy in advanced countries will increase the cost of servicing foreign debt for emerging markets. Moreover, war, uncertainty, sanctions may lower risk appetite on the part of investors, leading to capital outflows from emerging markets. And this increases the risk of debt crisis in the poorest parts of the world. So that's one big risk. Second, I worry about further dis disruptions that may have global repercussions. Just a few days ago, Janet Yellen was discouraging Europe from introducing oil embargo on Russia, as it would lead to higher oil prices, higher inflation and lower growth, not just in Europe, but also in the US and the rest of the world. Now that Russia has cut off uh, supplies to Poland and Bulgaria, this decision may no longer be in European hands. So further increase in energy prices 
may lead to further increases in inflation and lower growth. Mm, that is uh, pretty worrying. And actually, while we're talking about uh, EBRD regions, we are so you know, in EBRD regions, you could well see inflation reaching uh, high levels, well above 11%, uh, expected to grow even higher on average. What, what can those countries do to keep inflation at bay? What are the policy steps? I mean, obviously, you can raise interest rates, you can keep, uh, you can keep uh, depressing the economy a bit, or you, you can do various things. But I mean, it's, it's a tough battle, isn't it? Absolutely. And actually, our countries of operations have been quite busy responding to inflation uh, with many tools. So obviously, there is the standard toolkit of the monetary policy. Um, but then, you know, countries on the positive side have tried to shelter the poor by introducing means-tested transfers to low-income households to shelter them from high energy, from high food prices. But then we have also seen less optimal policies, such as countries lowering taxes on fuel and food. And even though this may contribute to lowering inflationary pressures, it is quite costly to government coffers, particularly in a situation where public finances have already been strained by COVID. And on the negative side, we have already seen countries introducing restrictions on food exports. It may help their own inflationary pressures, but it is going to put up upward pressure on global food prices and hurt everybody else. Now, I know we're all supposed to have faith in central banks, uh, but uh, they didn't exactly uh, cover themselves in glory over the past 12 months. I think I lost count of the number of central bankers I heard uh, Sergey mentioning that they thought inflation would only be transitory. That was even before the Ukraine war. I mean, I think that was always a long shot. It hardly looked transitory even from the beginning, did it, Sergey? Yes, uh, it, is, um, it is also a situation where central banks look at markets and markets look, uh, look at central banks and uh, both think that inflation is transitory and uh, support each other's, uh, uh, as we now know, in uh, the hindsight, uh, mistakes. But um, yes, uh, it's, it's very hard to recognize whether economic shocks are transitory or permanent while you're living within those shocks. So I wouldn't really blame central bankers uh, regarding this, but there were some voices which already a year or even before ago, I would warn that, for example, American fiscal expansion is needed by it's going too far and may create demand inflation, especially given the supply chain disruptions uh, driven by COVID. And of course, uh, nobody wanted to believe that the war would actually happen. And uh, that is a big, big shock for the global economy, for European economy in particular. One thing I would add to what Beata suggested is that um, there is a big difference between subsidizing fuel prices and providing income support. And this is actually related to green energy transition. Um, higher fuel prices uh, result in adjustment in consumption of fossil fuels, uh, while uh, lower subsidized uh, fuel prices may actually not help doing that. And this is why the discussion of oil and gas embargo, I know that you are not in Europe, but within Europe, this discussion is very heated. And this discussion is actually quite heated regarding those two measures which uh, support the households. But it is also true that everybody recognizes that whatever oil and gas embargo is discussed, it has to be coupled with 
support measures for most vulnerable households. The problem, of course, is that this discussion is held within Europe. Some EBRD countries' operations are within European Union, but uh, the countries which are going to be hit by higher oil and gas prices and food prices outside of Europe uh, will have much less uh, financial support. And that is what uh, worries me a lot. Beata, should we be impressed by the foresight of uh, central banks? Unfortunately, in this instance, not. <laughs> That's a very short answer. Giving uh, That gives us an impression of what you think then about central banks at the moment. So over the last few decades, we have experienced great moderation. And I think in some ways, central bankers have become a bit more complacent. Um, I think there has been a lot of faith put into their ability to deal with inflation. And they were very happy to take on additional goals and additional missions, which in the eyes of some critics has distracted them from their core function of maintaining price stability. Now, you know, you've both mentioned so far in this program, and uh, we've talked about it in previous podcasts as well, that some of this is being fueled, obviously, by soaring energy prices, which then, you know, feed into all sorts of other areas of inflation. Uh, but that's difficult to resolve, isn't it, Sergey? Because in the end, diversification would be required of energy sources. And as we've, we've remarked before, that's not easy to achieve overnight. So very difficult to turn off the inflation tap coming from that source. That's exactly right. Uh, however, the extraordinary circumstances have focused uh, the minds of uh, energy consumers. And we've seen a quite impressive transformation of a, a German energy balance when the German Minister of Economy and Climate recently announced that the dependence of Germany on Russian fossil fuels has declined tremendously in the recent uh, weeks. So diversification is possible. Uh, but of course, the total amount of energy produced in the world doesn't uh, appear overnight uh, because of diversification. On the other hand, in longer term, the higher the prices, the more the quantity supplied by energy producers. And in that sense, it's very important to let market work in the sense that uh, don't introduce uh, price caps, don't regulate prices. If prices go up, that will bring on board uh, more capacity, more production, and will help moderate the prices. This is what we saw over the last 10 years. Remember that energy prices were going up until 2014, and then the American shale oil production eventually uh, resulted in lower prices, which we enjoyed for many, many years. And the same may happen again and again. And in that sense, I, I think uh, we should continue to believe in uh, market forces that eventually help to moderate uh, the prices when prices go up too, too, too high. Mm, and shortages of some materials, Beata, are certainly uh, behind part of the inflation issue. But you know, import substitution to actually get around this problem is not so easy, is it? No, but, but if I may, Jonathan, let me return to the issue of high energy and food prices. Mm. The soaring energy and food prices are particularly dangerous when it comes to creating inflationary expectations. And that's because people form beliefs about future price changes based in part on the prices they have recently observed. And in particular, 
based on prices of goods they purchased frequently. So women tend to base their inflationary expectations on grocery prices, while for men, petrol prices play an important role. Interestingly, women on average tend to expect higher inflation than men do. Now, in the current situation of high food and high energy prices, uh, people's expectations about future changes in the price level will be biased upwards, right? Because food and energy have seen particularly high inflation. So people will expect inflation in the future to be worse than what it really is. And there is a danger that these expectations will become self-fulfilling because if everyone expects a high inflation, workers will demand high pay increases, firms will want to raise prices, landlords will not want to uh, lock in rents for a long time. So everybody will start us acting as if these high prices were already a reality and high inflation will become a reality. Mm. Well, let me remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics, which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. You can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and share your ideas with us, of course, on Twitter at EBRD, uh, hashtag Fearonomics. Our subject today is the Fearonomics of the inflation world with Sergei Guriev and Beata Yevorchik. And uh, let's move on to something that's been happening recently. We've got new lockdowns, for example, severely disrupting China's economy. Are we likely to see the impact of that on global inflation? I mean, it would suggest we, we might as more shortages emerge, Beata. Absolutely. So over the last few decades, globalization has been putting downward pressure on prices and hence inflation. Now, part of that process um, is coming to an end simply because most of the production that could have been moved has already been moved uh, to cheaper locations. And of course, because um, wages in China has been rising. Now, on top of that trend, we have disruptions uh, caused by lockdowns in China. That's going to cause further mismatch between supply and demand, uh, thus leading to inflationary pressures. And Sergey, you know, when we look at economic history, what can that tell us about ways of effectively and successfully bringing inflation down? Well, we hope we hope have learned a lot over the last uh, 100 years uh, about episodes like today's in economic textbooks. Uh, people talk about stagflation of 1970s and uh, Eventually, the stagflation was overcome in the United States in early 80s by Paul Volcker, which resulted in a uh, recession of early 1980s. Uh, hopefully, we are not in a such bad situation right now in the sense that oil prices have increased, but they didn't quadruple like they did uh, during the decade of 1970s. And, in the, and also, we do have much more diversification of oil uh, production in the world today. And uh, the Western economies are not as oil dependent uh, as they were in 1970. So in that sense, in that sense, I'm more optimistic. I'm also, um, I'm also more optimistic regarding the economic knowledge, uh, whatever we think about central bankers, these are much better trained, much more competent people today than they used to be. And uh, they have much more data. These data come in real time. They observe the spending on uh, credit cards 
in real time so they can uh, they can uh, react very quickly to this balance between supply and demand that uh, Biada has mentioned. So I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic and I think uh, history uh, would teach us lessons that are too dark. I think we'll see we'll see the uh, solution to today's problems, uh, which will be easier. On the other hand, we are in a situation where, where we have a war uh, between two large countries. And uh, of course, it's not 1939 in that sense, or 1941 in that sense, but it's still a war. And it still has major economic implications. And Beata, do you think history is any guide, uh, or are you dismissive of that uh, in terms of potential helpfulness, a bit like Sergei? Well, those who don't remember history are condemned to reliving it. <laughs> so I think there is a lot to be learned from history. And if there is a powerful lesson, uh, it says that it's better to prevent inflation from being becoming too high than to treat it, right? As the saying goes, a stitch in time saves nine. So the higher we let the inflation become, the higher the cost of taming it will be. And note that these costs are not just confined to the economy where anti-inflation policy is in place. They also affect other countries through international spillovers. So if German economy needs to be cooled down, that means lower demand for exports from countries in the broadly defined European neighborhood. Now, some of these countries may welcome that because they are themselves suffering from inflation, but this will be less welcomed in countries that don't have an inflationary problem. Higher interest rates in the US um, that are needed to fight inflation will draw capital flows away from emerging markets and into the US thus lowering the value of emerging market currencies. So inflation has inflation fighting has costs um, that go beyond the economy that is engaged in taming it. Mm, interesting to think of it in a more global way there. I'm certainly old enough, by the way, to remember inflation history. I remember the 1970s inflation history very, very well. And indeed, uh, also uh, the next oil shock at the uh, end of 1979-80. Uh, so two, uh, two energy shocks. Uh, Sergei, uh, what do you see as the danger of monetary tightening? I mean, I can think of quite a few. I'm sure you can too. Yes, as we discussed, as Biada has mentioned, uh, one danger is uh, related to international finance that uh, increased uh, interest rates in uh, developed countries will uh, reduce capital flows to developing countries. And in some cases that will result in capital exodus from developing countries from emerging markets. Uh, the other risk is of course that um, politician, the policymakers uh, tighten too quickly that will uh, that may generate uh, that may generate a recession in developed countries themselves so these risks are quite substantial and as i said it's very hard to calibrate the policy response today because we live in a, in an environment which we've not observed in recent decades well i can i can think of another one as well so i don't know what you think of this but if i cast my mind back to the 1970s and i know history is a very unreliable guide, you know, I remember then what you often saw was central banks using, you know, past past behavior, past data, 
you know, tightening when economies were already starting to slow down, inflation was already being squeezed out, or sometimes actually relaxing when, uh, you know, economies were, were speeding up, so not getting the timing right. That's, that's a great point, Jonathan. Uh, I'm less worried about that exactly because central banks are uh, now enjoying better control of the data. Uh, they now observe a lot of things immediately using new data, big data, using digital technology. So the data come in very quickly, right away in real time. And if anything, this concern now applies to fiscal policy responses. It takes time for government and uh, parliament to work out together a fiscal package to respond to a crisis. While monetary policy, in theory, should react quite quickly, much quicker than they would 40 years ago. So in theory, uh, while uh, policy mistakes are still possible, in theory, there are many more fundamental factors that can prevent those policy mistakes related to timing. Mm. And Beata, obviously the EBRD is very interested in the private sector. How do firms uh, adapt to withstand inflation? Because it's difficult for them as they're faced with all these rising costs, which they have to either pass on to consumers or try to limit. Uh, but it's, it's pretty tough for companies. Indeed, it's pretty tough. But, you know, I think it's useful to take a step back and point out that at the moment, we do not know the true state of the economic landscape. And that's because many firms have survived the pandemic on life support as their governments have sheltered them from creditors. So for instance, last year, the number of bankruptcies in the new EU member states was lower than before COVID. And that's thanks to this government support to those emergency measures that were helping the banks, that were protecting the banks from their creditors. But now, as government support is being withdrawn, and at the same time, economic conditions are deteriorating, we are going to see a lot of firms being put under pressure. Um, and the right thing to do is for governments to facilitate orderly restructuring and winding down of firms that are not viable. And that's because this allows for capital and labor to be released and put to more productive usage. Now, some governments may opt to continue with life support and create zombie firms. And this may be politically attractive in the short run, but in the long run, these countries will pay a high price in terms of foregone growth. Let me remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics, and our subject today is the Fearonomics of all the inflation fears that we're seeing. Uh, let's uh, examine it a bit further. And Sergey, you know, the poorest households often experience even higher inflation levels than, than wealthier households because their share of food and energy consumption is a higher part of their income and their disposable income. What, what about the human cost of this crisis? I don't, we shouldn't really forget that, should we? That's exactly right. And uh, for the reasons you mentioned, the poorest households spend more uh, a higher share of their uh, monthly budget on, on food and fuel. And in that sense, the, this particular inflation is especially painful for them. They also have uh, less savings, so uh, they have less flexibility in terms of rearranging their spending over time. And in that, in that sense, um, any policy response to this crisis should involve policymakers thinking about uh, budget support, 
maybe means tested support um, to those households because otherwise 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 it will be a major major problem of this of, of uh, this particular um, increase in inflation and Beata, do you agree with that is that the sort of uh, efforts that are going to be needed the policies to provide support to the poorest absolutely and as Sergey said, protecting low-income households can be best done through means-tested transfers, right? And that's because they reach their intended recipients and they are less costly than across the board fuel subsidies or tax cuts. But often these means-tested transfers are not very popular with the electorate. So politicians resort to across-the-board support measures, which unfortunately are very costly and less advisable in the current situation of strained public finances. But let me bring another equally pressing issue, uh, which is providing support to the poorest countries in the world. I think there is a real danger that the war in Ukraine may divert attention and resources from the poorest countries in the world. And as government finances are strained by COVID, by the demands that are ever increasing, you know, more military spending, fighting climate change, um, reconstruction in Ukraine, it is not inconceivable that international aid flows, for instance, to Africa, will not be going up in the near future. And, and Sergey, you know, if we think about all these issues that you've raised, that Beata has just raised as well, you know, we, we're very proud, aren't we, as a world that we've taken lots of people out of poverty in recent decades. But are we going to see more people push back into poverty by this? Yes, absolutely. And uh, we already were worried about this during COVID pandemics. And uh, in real terms, many people will suffer um, from this increase in energy and food prices unless there is a, a powerful uh, coordinated response from development, uh, development agencies and um, aid agencies. I think, I think uh, that is one of the most important moments in uh, um, pursuing a sustainable development goal number one, uh, end of poverty. And I think, uh, I think we should be mobilized for this. This is really, really a crucial moment today. We've been proud for a reason, but in the last uh, three years, that's been a very important battleground where uh, we are not necessarily winning. Okay, we've got through more than half an hour of the podcast without really mentioning the S word. So let me do it now. Stagflation. Uh, that is, of course, high inflation coupled with low growth. Uh, do you think the danger of that is, is real, Sergei? Yes, it is real. It is real. I already mentioned that uh, we uh, see downgrading of growth forecasts for the world in general, for advanced economies, for, uh, for uh, European, uh, European Union. Euro area. All these growth forecasts have been downgraded, yet uh, annual growth is still positive. But uh, quarterly growth forecasts already for some European countries go into negative territory. And so we can actually see a situation where uh, some European countries would see negative growth and high inflation. And this is a very unpleasant situation that is described in every macroeconomic textbook, as you mentioned, stagflation where um, you want to support the economy thus lower interest rates. On the other hand, you need to fight inflation and thus you have to increase interest rates. And this is a, a very 
difficult trade-off uh, to face. Yes, again, I'm old enough to remember uh, living in stagflation economies in the United Kingdom in uh, 1970, late 70s, and also uh, in mid to late 70s, and also, of course, in the early 90s, uh, briefly, uh, when a, a similar thing. Beato, how do you see stagflation? I certainly would not rule it out, especially if there are further disruptions to energy markets. But I sincerely hope that it will not come to pass, or at least it will not last long. Let's hope not. But I mean, Sergey, it is quite difficult to deal with once you have stagflation, isn't it? You know, I mean, I have to say economists are always very divided. Central banks are divided about how to actually cope with stagflation, how to cure it or whether you just have to let it work its way out of the system. Well, uh, it's it's uh, as a, any any other economic policy trade off. Uh, it's resolved through a political choice where you want to let uh, higher inflation or higher unemployment. And uh, yeah, this uh, choice is resolved differently in different societies, depending on the social contract, depending on institutions of supporting unemployed or low-income households. So indeed, in some countries, there'll be more tolerance for inflation. In some countries, there'll be more tolerance for um, uh, slowdown or even negative GDP dynamics. And again, much depends on proximity to the war, much depends on inequality within the country. So all these issues are not something that you can resolve uh, in a one-size-fits-all manner. Okay, let's have one final question to you both. If you were now a central bank governor, although I don't wish that job on my worst enemy, if you were a central bank governor of one of the major G7 economies, what would your preferred policy be? What would be your approach on this, Beata? Well, in addition to using the standard toolkit of monetary policy, I would try to influence inflationary expectations of the public. And I would try to do it through better and more clear communications. So I would paraphrase Mario Draghi and promise to do whatever it takes to bring inflation down. I would follow Oli Ren and use Twitter to communicate this message to the public. And I might even consider doing what the Central Bank of Jamaica did. They commissioned a reggae song about <laughs> Central Bank's commitment to keeping prices low. When I want it too low, when inflation's stable and predictable, that's the way to go, car when it you know what I'm going to do as soon as uh, we finish this program? I'm going to have a listen to that. That is a fantastic, I love that idea. Thank you, Beata. Uh, Sergey, do you fancy ever uh, being a central bank governor? What would you do? I won't do a reggae song because I'm not good at it. Uh, commissioning is one thing, performing is another. But indeed, uh, uh, fortunately, in Jamaica, they actually commissioned from professionals. So uh, on, uh, on your question... As I said, it depends. If, if I were a central bank governor in the US, I would raise interest rates and that's what they're going to do. In Europe, uh, the debate is much more nuanced. And I think uh, we now already see lots of signs that European economy is not doing well. So I would not raise interest rates as aggressively as, as uh, American colleagues. And that, that creates this complexity that you really need to look at the data and see what's happening almost every week because the world is changing every week. We don't know when the war ends. We don't know what happens to uh, the food and oil prices. We don't know how Europe will and whether Europe will implement oil and gas embargo. All these factors 
are so important in uh, driving inflation in Europe, but also globally, that there is no simple answer to this, uh, to this question. But I fully agree with Beata that you want to convince the public that inflation will go down. The problem is that uh, you need to be uh, very, very convincing, and you also need to specify at which horizon you expect inflation to come down. And uh, I, think, I think by now, all G7 countries have central bankers who have credibility over midterm and long-term. Whatever happens this year, I think public has no doubt that eventually inflation will come down. You can look at the markets. If you don't believe the markets, you can make a lot of money <laughs> hedging against high inflation in the longer run. People don't do that exactly because they know in the longer run, inflation will be down. The question is whether people like Beata may convince uh, others through Twitter or reggae songs to bring inflation down by the end of this year. And this is much more uncertain. I hardly dare ask this question, but I'm going to anyway, Sergei, because uh, you've raised Brexit on previous podcasts. You were the governor of the Bank of England. What would you do, bearing in mind there are also Brexit pressures adding to inflation? Uh, I'm so fortunate uh, that I, I don't need to follow uh, uh, British economy these days. It's, uh, <laughs> it's quite depressing, I should say. And uh, honestly, honestly, we don't have shortages of sunflower, uh, sunflower oil in, in France. Or maybe maybe yet, but uh, but it is it is uh, it is scary to what extent Brexit adds to all the problems we've discussed today. There is an additional dimension of various uh, Brexit-related issues. They are not first order compared to war or pandemic, of course. And on many of these dimensions, uh, British policymakers have done better than their counterparts in other countries. But uh, still. I don't envy British policymakers that they have, in addition to war and pandemic, they also have Brexit. That uh, is an unnecessary complication. Indeed. Thank you very much indeed, Sergei. And thank you very much, Beata. So what do I think about after hearing all of that? I think actually we've got good reason to be worried, at least this year, about inflation. I think it's uh, unpredictable. It's potentially painful if I think each month about the bills that I've seen, household bills arriving arriving at uh, the doorstep with the very large inflationary increases. I had one today, it was 25%. And that wasn't an energy bill, by the way, but you can see how energy is also feeding into everything else. Uh, I, I take from this discussion, there's good reason to be very concerned, to be quite fearful in some ways, uh, and to hope that central banks uh, get it right. Uh, that they, you know, armed with better data and better toolkits this time than perhaps in previous crises, that they have a better shot of getting it right, but uh, not easy. Jonathan, I, I, would I just can see you want you... to intervene. Yes, I, I do, because I want to add that you should not ask for a wage increase, because that <laughs> would create inflationary spiral. And uh, let's hope that the central banks get it right, and it's a transitory increase, and we will not... Uh, uh, we will not get into this spiral where your wage increases result in even higher energy prices and we all suffer. Okay, I'll make sure I show maximum restraint. Thank you very much indeed, Sergey. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to Fearonomics. It is the podcast where, together with Sergey and Beata, we help you confront and overcome, or perhaps not, your fears about the global economy. If you liked our discussion today, join us next week at the EBRD 2022 Annual Meeting and Business Forum in Marrakesh. You can be there both physically and online. We'll be presenting our latest regional economic forecasts and discussing inflation and much more with Beata. 
and Sergey. So we look forward to that. And of course, you can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or anywhere else you like, anywhere you get your podcast from. Share your ideas with us on Twitter at EBRD, hashtag Fearonomics. See you next time. Bye. When inflation stable and predictable, that's the way to go. Car when it high, people are gonna cry. When it's too low, the economy can grow. Economy marching to a new inflation beat. We have a brand new song for every street. Low lending rate, stability in place. Cause GOJ and BOJ run the race. The foundation well ready for private sector get busy. Must send the foundation well ready for private sector get busy. We don't want